It's Monday, December 13th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Jason Moser. Good to see you. Howdy, howdy. We've got portfolio strategies to discuss, and yes, we're going to talk about the Peloton ad, but we have two <laughs> quick items from the automotive world to get to. Let's start with Harley-Davidson. Shares up nearly 20% after announcing the company is merging its electric motorcycle unit, which is Livewire. They're going to merge that with a SPAC. So, Livewire is going to have an enterprise value of about $1.8 billion. It's going to trade on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker LVW. Putting aside the SPAC route, is this is Harley Davidson a twenty percent better company today as a result of this move? I'm trying to understand this move. <laughs> well, uh, I would I would say probably not, but it does create I think um, so, some, but potentially an interesting opportunity for investors. I mean, I think you have to look past. There are a couple of poor performances that you have to really look past. First, we look past. The poor performance of SPACs here recently, right? And the, the generally the glass half empty perspective on them right now. I mean, that's understandable in a lot of cases, right? I think a lot of these a lot of these SPACs have earned that that uh, skepticism. But then you also have to look past, I think, um, Harley Davidson's stock performance as well. I mean, this is not a company where it's it's uh, paid to be an owner over the last five years. Stocks down. Going into today, I think around twenty percent. So this might have it just about even uh, over the last five years break even. But I mean, the market's outpaced it uh, over that over that stretch considerably. So it's not been the greatest investment in the world, obviously. Um, and and I think what this does, though, it, it, the SPAC situation. While many of them are are in a bad place, they do give you the occasional opportunity to become an owner of what one day will be a good business. So I mean, I think it, it's about setting expectations appropriately, and and understanding that with these spacs, you're getting in way earlier than probably normal. And I think that's the case here. But I I do understand the excitement because it feels like much with much like with electric vehicles. I mean, this is sort of where the puck is headed, so to speak, right? I mean, electric. Vehicles extend far beyond just cars, um, and we're seeing that play out with a situation like this here with Livewire. And and to try to get an idea of the opportunity, I looked back through Harley Davidson's 10K just to get an idea of the Livewire part of the business. And they only break it down so uh, much, but if you look at their unit shipments in 2019 versus 2020, overall unit shipments for Harley, there were 214,000 in 2019 versus 145,000 in 2020. Now, Livewire uh, units are included in this little sub uh, section called cruiser motorcycle units that they break out, and those cruiser motorcycle units make up about 35 to 37 percent of that overall unit. Um, number that they report. Now, that cruiser motorcycle units isn't just all live wire. It's it's a few different types of bikes, and so maybe maybe that live wire uh, representation is a third of that of that of that thirty five percent or so. So you're maybe thinking about a third of the fifty five thousand bikes that were in that cruiser motorcycle unit. Maybe a third of those fifty five thousand were uh, live wire or or could be. And, and that gives you maybe an idea of, of how many bikes you're talking about. It's just it, it's going to be the first public EV motorcycle company in the U.S. Um, it, it's going to have that 
reputation with Harley to lean back on, that expertise with Harley to lean back on. It's going to be well capitalized, obviously, thanks to the SPAC route. So there's a lot of potential there. I don't know that I would necessarily uh, want to jump into this one right at the get-go, but but I certainly see some potential. Well, we'll wait for their first report as a, a public company and hopefully get some more color there. Uh, let's, speaking of electric vehicles, Rivian Automotive got some good news this morning. Motor Trend named the R1T their truck of the year. And I don't, I don't want to overreact to this. Certainly, the market is not overreacting to this because uh, this seems like it would be even better news if they were cranking out these vehicles and getting them on the road <laughs> to people. That's yeah. not the case. But from a, a marketing perspective, this is a great feather in their cap, isn't it? It, it absolutely is. And I think it's very easy to look at Rivian today and dismiss it because it doesn't make any money. I mean, I'm not talking about profits. I mean, I'm talking about like revenue, man. This is just a this is a company that is just getting started, um, and it just happens to be uh, publicly traded in in a hundred billion dollar plus market cap. Um, that tells you that clearly this company is not being valued on fundamentals whatsoever. It's being valued on promise, and this is a sign that at least uh, there is some promise uh, there. And, and I think it's it's easy to see this headline and just think, oh, okay, whatever, Motor Trend uh, Truck of the Year, whatever. I, I would actually I would encourage anyone out there, any investor out there, to go to the Motor Trend article and understand the why. As, as to why this truck has received this award, because this isn't just like a headline. I mean, if you Google these three words, just Google Rivian, then Motor, then Trend, right? Spaces between those three words. If you Google Rivian, Motor, Trend, that'll take you right to this article. Go read that article. I think from an investor's perspective, it starts to make a little bit more sense because you understand why this truck has received this award. And, and so, to me, again, I mean, this is a business in Rivian that is being valued clearly on promise, not fundamentals. But but this type of award, and I think further, when you read you when you read the Motor Trend case, you start to at least see that promise. I mean, Chris, this this is a quote from this piece. It says, although Rivian deliberately designed the R1T, that's the truck. Although a Rivian deliberately designed the R1T to appeal to a wealthier, active lifestyle audience rather than the blue-collar crowd, the truck isn't limited by this decision. As evidence, it can haul hay bales and pull horse trailers. Chris, I'm in. <laughs> I am in. Let me tell you what. I mean, so this, I, I think they have really, they, they did a great job putting this case together. It is it is a, a marrying of form and function that really impressed them. Uh, so I'm not sitting there telling that Rivian is a screaming buy today, but I think for a company that is being valued purely on promise, like you said, this is a very, very good feather to have in the cap. And I get the comparisons to Tesla, but I will just point out that, you know, for people who are like, you know, this is, this is how Tesla started out. That may be true. Tesla didn't start out with a valuation of $100 billion. <laughs> like that, no, like, it did not. <laughs> like, think whatever you want about Tesla. It wasn't, you know, when it was at this stage, when it was at the pre-revenue stage, it wasn't a public company being valued by the market at a hundred billion dollars. So that's that again. This this points to uh, the potential for a bright future for Rivian. Yeah, it's already an incredibly expensive stock given where the business is. It is, and and I think you're there's a Tesla effect here. I think there is a Tesla effect. Um, 
similar to a halo effect, right? When you, you see you see a, a company that actually is putting something up there. And I mean, like, if you look at their truck next to Tesla's Cybertruck, like, I mean, why anybody would buy that Cybertruck is beyond me. I'm sure there are going to be some, some folks out there that do, but like Rivian has made a good looking pickup truck and, and it's fully electric. So, I mean, I, there's, there's a lot to be said for aesthetics when it comes to cars and it seems like Rivian's onto something. HBO Max has a new series called, and just like that, it is, um, a spinoff, an extension of it's, it's basically built out of the universe of, uh, sex in the city. Um, and so for anyone who, um, hasn't seen that show and wants to, this is a spoiler alert, uh, I don't know what the Venn diagram looks like for market foolery <laughs> listeners and people who are interested in um, Sex and the City spinoffs. Um, th- there's probably something there, but uh, so spoiler alert, because uh, we're going to talk about the first episode. Okay, good. Those people have hit the pause button or gone away altogether. So apparently, in the the first episode of this show, um, one of the characters played by Chris Noth, uh, his character's name is Mr. Big. Um, He's getting a workout on a Peloton bike. He has a heart attack and he dies. Uh, why uh, the the woman he's um, uh, dating doesn't immediately call nine one one? I don't know. That's up to the writers to decide. But uh, but anyway, he's on a Peloton bike, has a heart attack, and he dies. And Peloton, to their credit, came out with um, a, a, a creative commercial uh, soon thereafter. And based on everything I've read, it seems like uh, it is in response to this ad because there were people like, I think it was last Thursday or Friday, it was being talked about, uh, you know, in the financial media as a Peloton bike killed a guy in a fictional <laughs> universe, and uh, and that's just adding to the woes of the underlying business of Peloton. So they come out with this ad where Chris Noth is. Um, shown to be alive. It's a Peloton ad. It's voiced by Ryan Reynolds. It's it's Chris Noth and, and Jess King, who is the woman who's the Peloton instructor. Um, but, but having just given Peloton and their marketing department some credit, um, let me raise this, Jason. Every indication is that Peloton came up with this ad in response to this, because every indication is that Peloton did not know how their product <laughs> And their instructor were going to be used, how they were going to be featured in this show. And I think if you're a Peloton shareholder, that should be just a tiny bit of concern that they <laughs> don't have that part of their business locked up. Yeah, I mean, this was. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm probably I'm not the biggest fan of Peloton. I mean, I, I I'm not I, I'm not like some staunch bear. Although I did say in our recent Motley Fool Money Thanksgiving special that this was a stock you'd probably want to avoid, um, and I feel like they just they have a ceiling more or less. But but it is really it, it's kind of amazing to see. It, it, I I don't know that anybody would have ever really thought that a storyline in a show could create this type of reaction, but. I think it also speaks to the position the Peloton's in right now. Um, I, I think if the stock, if the stock were trading at, at 
at or near all-time highs like so many of these other businesses are out there today probably would have even given it a second thought i mean it would have probably been <laughs> you know kind of laugh it off um the business is clearly in a bit of a different position now uh though and and this is something where i feel like they actually needed to respond in some way um and and i actually think they responded the right way i mean this was a very tongue in cheek uh, response to it, it sort of played along with the joke. I mean, it is fiction after all, right? I mean, this is just a TV show. And, and I think most people are able to put those pieces together. And so not only do I feel like they, they did the right thing in responding to it, I think they responded to it the right way. Um, they were able to laugh a little bit at themselves, uh, put together a clever commercial really quickly, utilizing uh, you know the, the the actor who played the character in the, in the show. Um, so from a consumer's perspective, it is I think it's probably all's well that ends well, but it does speak to I think the position the company's in today because if if, if things were on the up and up, they probably could have just looked at this and laughed and not done anything at all. Well, and think about a company like Apple, which is. Incredibly, incredibly vigilant about how their products are used in television, in movies. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't want, uh, they're not going to license uh, their image for films where it's, you know, it's like criminals are, are using iPhones. It's like, no, no, we want the heroes using iPhones. We don't, <laughs> we don't want criminals using iPhones. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. Just in terms of like, look, if this if this business were crushing it, uh, this this wouldn't really be a story. Yeah, yeah, probably probably the case. Uh, let's wrap up with an email from uh, Peter Stanley, uh, not just one of the dozens of listeners, but also a member of our Rule Breaker service. Um, uh, Peter writes, "I have over 100 holdings, and I love almost all of them." I'm thinking about trimming some weeds, as Jason would say, as they are not all firing on all cylinders. But I may be over-diversified. My problem is I feel like I may have seller's remorse if I see some of these companies excel in the coming years. How have you all dealt with this conundrum, as it seems a lot of fools have around 25 to 30 individual stock holdings? Do you just accept that you made the best decision based on the information you had at the time? Once you sell, making room for the new desired stock, or do you always and do you always have stocks potentially on the chopping block? Um, so there's a lot to unpack there. I will just speak to that last question first. Just the idea of do you always have stocks potentially on the chopping block? I don't think of it in those terms. I'm just speaking for myself. I do think in terms of a concept we've talked about a number of times, which is just leash. How much leash am I giving a given business? So I'm, my mindset is, if I don't have to sell, I'm not gonna sell. But um, I, I I do I do get where he's going with that last part. Like, do you have things? For me, it's not not so much the chopping block, but it's more sort of like, yeah, I I've got the ones that I know. If I do need to sell, if I do need to raise capital for any number of reasons, whether it's to fund additional purchases or to put the money somewhere else in my life, 
uh, yeah, it's the underperformers. It's the it's the ones that are furthest away from firing on all cylinders that are going to go first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, selling selling can be it's going to be different for everybody, and and I definitely like that idea of watering the flowers and and, and pulling the weeds. Um, I, I feel like to me, I, I think the reasonable expectation is that you will run into this. Like you're going to run into the situation at some point where you you do witness sellers' remorse. Um, the only way to not hit that, the only way to not actually get to that point is to, surprise, never sell. If you don't sell, then you'll never have sell- seller's remorse. Uh, but that is not entirely reasonable. I mean, we are investing, obviously, to make money. And for many of us, as we get older, we will need to sell some in order to capitalize on our on our success. Um, so, for me, I, I, I do think that one thing I've always done, and it's, I think when you go into it accept, accepting the fact that you're going to witness seller's remorse at some point or another, then the next thing you try to do is to figure out, okay, well, how, how can I learn from it? And so, I think that's what really can serve as a very valuable point for investors is you say, well, I'm going to sell something. Well, you should track it after you sell it. Follow it and see how the business continues to do, see how the stock continues to do. And you can even go so far as to keep a little investing journal where you're writing down the reasons why you sold, the things that you might be looking for. And for example, you sell a stock and then you you record that in the journal and then you follow it along and you see that stock continues to perform very well. Uh, write down the reasons why it appears that stock is doing well and compare those reasons to why you sold it in the first place. Um, sometimes they're connected, sometimes they're not. But I think that the investing journal can help you make some sense of why uh, you might run into seller's remorse if you do. Um, and again, I think that unless you just never sell, at some point or another, you will run into seller's remorse. Um, so I don't look at it necessarily as a bad thing. I look at it as a way to learn and grow as an investor. Um, and, and it's going to be different for everybody. I, th- I think you're right. I, I default to just being lazy. Like I, I just try to be <laughs> lazy and like not sell. <laughs> you know, I'm like I, I don't need the money right now. I mean, I'm investing money that I just don't need for the foreseeable future. Um, and so for me, I default to just not selling. Now I have a portfolio today with somewhere in the neighborhood. I think it's 33 individual companies. And for me, that's a bit that's a bit more than I thought I would probably own. And the the main reason is because I keep on finding these cool businesses out there that I want to own. And so anytime I, I feel like I hit you know one of those one of those points where I, I think that's another business I want to add, I don't feel badly adding it. Maybe I'll get to fifty companies and and I'll look at fifty and I'll say you know what I could I could go to sixty, and maybe that maybe I could go to seventy. And and I, I don't think one hundred is too many honestly. I mean, I know there's some criticisms out there that the more you own, the more you uh, risk mimicking an index. Uh, you got to get pretty big to do that, frankly. And and furthermore, I mean, hey, listen, owning the S and P index has worked out really well for a lot of people, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but but yeah, I do go back to number one. I just try to be lazy and and not sell because I don't need to. Um, but if if you do, I absolutely think it makes perfect sense to keep a little journal, write down why you invested it in the first place, why you're selling it now, and then track it follow it and see if the company continues to uh, fail or succeed and, and, and tie that back to the reasons why you bought it, you sold it. And I think that can ultimately help you develop as an investor and uh, maybe make you less likely to run into sellers remorse down the road. Jason Moser, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. 
So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. You